So as you know, we are in a series on great prayers of the Bible, and it just wouldn't be right if we got to the end of this series and didn't address Psalms of Lament. Now, I have to confess to you, this is probably the least comfortable kind of prayer for me. It's not that I theologically have a problem with it. Um, I've encouraged many people to cry out to God in, in sorrow or anger over my 13 years of ministry. Um, so theologically, it's not a problem. It's that I, I tend to like to be a happy person. Uh, it's my preferred state, emotional state. And so going to the, the, this place is, is not comfortable for me. It's not where I want to be. And yet, as we heard in that video, it's really important. Almost half of the psalms in the Psalter are lament psalms. Uh, that says something. And it's because life is hard. There's just a variety of ways that life is hard. And if your life is not hard in this moment, just wait a day or a week or a month or a year, and it will be hard. <clears throat> There's all different kinds of pain that we go through. There's the pain of, of just our bodies breaking down under the sin-death environment in which we live. Uh, there's the sin out there in the world that even if we see it from a distance, it pains us just to watch the news. Uh, coming in a little bit closer to home, there's uh, struggles in our families, in our relationships, with friendships. Uh, there's the death of loved ones. There's uh, a rise in our culture, and without getting into any of the reasons for this, of anxiety and depression and mood disorders. So, the Psalms, and especially Lamentation Psalms, are especially relevant, or I don't know if I can say especially relevant, they continue to be relevant for us today, just because uh, we live in a world that tries to ignore the reality of all of this. The fact is, we're as sad a people as ever has been, and so we need these lament psalms as much as any group that has ever lived. And so we should be glad, and not glad in a happy sense, but thankful that God has inspired psalmists to write psalms that cry out to Him. And if you go through any uh, lamentation psalm, you will find that the language is shocking. And you might ask yourself, can I really say that to God? Isn't that a lack of faith? Isn't that selfish or self-indulgent isn't that something or other but that's because this is a general statement that may not be true all of the time or for all people but in uh, the church today we have tended to try to ignore some of these difficult aspects of life unless we can't ignore them like at a funeral or through uh, a serious illness or what have you uh, but the, the lament psalms are not for just those special moments. They're for the struggles of life day by day, season by season. I have chosen to take us to Psalm 88. The reason I chose this psalm is that it is the darkest of all the lament psalms. There is no light at all in this psalm. There is no hope in this psalm. A lot of the lament psalms start with the, this crying out to God, why? Or how long? And then 
the psalmist will bring his or her complaint to the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit will begin to work through the poet, the, the praying poet, and bring to mind some great acts of salvation or the faithfulness of God or the character of God or a future hope or something. And that will begin to transition the lament into something else. And so usually by the end of the lament, you, you're not totally whole and you don't go back to where you were before you were in this moment of grief, but you've come through it somehow to various degrees and now you're standing on firm ground again. And so there's a very pastoral function in most of the lament psalms uh, that say, okay, pray through this and spend as much time as you need in the, the, the beginning verses. But the pastoral implication is eventually get to the end of the psalm in your own heart. We don't have that here. So that's why I picked it. I picked it to say, well, if we're going to go here, let's go here all the way. Uh, just take a look, open your Bibles to Psalm 88 and look at the last verse, verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. My beloved is probably his wife, his friends. He's alone. Darkness. We're going to look at this psalm in total, but what we'll see is he doesn't even feel the presence of God. You ever have that moment? Let's pray. Lord, as we come into this psalm, I pray your Holy Spirit would take us to the depth of anguish that Haman wrote about. Maybe for some of us that won't be very hard. We're, we're there or almost there. For others, this was a very good day until now. Uh, but Lord, I pray, help us all to come into the depths of grief, sorrow, and lament. Meet us there. So that we can be effective ministers of the gospel in the world in which we live. We have to come here so we can go there. I pray that you would speak through me. Equip us, your church. In Christ's name, amen. Today, we're seeing that great prayers cry out to God. Let's stand and read Psalm 88. This is the word of God. O oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. 
Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of the forgetfulness? Oh, Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Cause my beloved and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness. The Word of God. Please be seated. There are four parts to this psalm. 
So there's verse 1, which introduces the psalm, and it is, as we'll see, very different than the rest of the the psalm. And then we have verses 2 through the middle of verse 9, and then picking up in the middle of verse 9 through till 12, and then the fourth and final section is verses 13 to 18. And I'll show you how we've divided the psalm up this way, that at the beginning of each of these sections, except for verse 1, which comes at the end, uh, you, you hear Haman, who is the one who has written this psalm, crying out to God. He, he is acknowledging, look, I'm praying to you. I'm crying out to you, God. So let's just take a look at that. You have in verse 1, the second part there, I cry out day and night before you. And then you see the beginning of the second part of the psalm in verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Then the third part begins in the middle of verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And then in verse 13, the fourth and final section, But I, O Lord, I cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. So that's how we've divided the psalm up. For the rest of the morning, what we're going to do is go through each one of those sections and see, see the flow of this lament. The first section is the shortest one. It really introduces the psalm. It's a really important verse because it gives us a theological perspective on the one who is praying. In verse 1, we learn about the prayer, and we're told in the superscription that it's Haman, the Ezraite, not to be confused with He-Man, the master of the universe. I think it's a lament psalm, but we can still smile, right? Um, so we have in verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you day and night before you. What we learn about the one who is praying this, and this is really important, especially when we get into uh, section number 3, verses 9 and a half to the end of 12, is that the one who is praying this is a man of faith. He's a covenant keeper. I mean, he's broken the covenant like everyone did. But, but he, he desires to be in the covenant with God. And we know that because of how he addresses God. He uses the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. This is, this is not a, a, a theoretical God that somebody in a deep and dark place is praying to. This is a man who knows the God of Israel whose name is Yahweh. The God who is. Oh, Yahweh. And then look what he says about Yahweh. You're the God of my salvation. Uh, He makes it very personal. He says, I'm depending on you, God. I've come to the end of myself. Uh, Unless you save me, I have no salvation. So, so that's really important because sometimes we might think, well, you know, if I am sort of doing my part, if I know who God is, if I'm exercising faith, if, although I'm not doing it perfectly, I'm trying to walk in the ways of God. If I call to God through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Surely all will be well. Surely God will hear my prayer. Surely God will answer me the way I want to be answered and timely. But Haman is crying out to this God, the God whom he knows and loves, the God who he is depending upon with the right posture day and night. What this means is this is not just, oh, well, I guess it's time to pray. Haman is saying, look, I am a man of prayer. And we don't know how long, but the sense is continually I am praying to you. When Paul says pray without ceasing, that's what Haman is doing. Day and night I wake up and I pray to you. Before I go to sleep, I pray to you. So that's the first section of the psalm, and it orientates us, or it orients us to how we're supposed to interpret this. Then we get into the second section of the psalm, which is verse 2 through the middle of verse 9. And it's in this section where we learn a little bit about what Haman is going through. And we don't learn all of it. It, it, I think that it's intentionally ambiguous. Now we could begin to sort of read, I think responsibly, and I'm going to do that, into what Haman probably was going through. But the, the wording is ambiguous enough that it can be applied to a variety of situations. That's really important for the Psalms. Um, so if you're not going through exactly what Haman is going through, you can still come to Psalm 88 and pray it from where you are. But remember, you, before you get to verse 2 and following, put yourself into verse 1. Do you know the Lord God? Is He your only hope? Is He the God of your salvation? Do you know Him by His covenant name, Yahweh, and more personally even, through the name of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you praying without ceasing? Okay, we've established that, yes. Now then, we can appropriate this psalm for ourselves. What is it that Haman is going through? He, it seems that he is near death. It seems that this is a physical problem. We find out in this psalm that this is something that has been going on since his youth. So this is probably a lifelong struggle physically that has gotten worse to the point where he is about to die. And for all we know, he did die. It seems like that's why this psalm was preserved this way. So whoever it is that compiled the, the psalms into the Psalter, I would suggest to you that this is coming from a man who wrote this down and then he died. And you have a strain of wisdom uh, worldview in here. So it's, this is not that simple if you go into Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, especially Job. Haman and Job seem to have a lot in common except God restored Job and he doesn't restore Haman. But one strain of wisdom literature that needs to be brain, uh, uh, balanced with everything else that the Bible says 
about this topic is that if you are doing what is right, God will bless you. And if you're not doing what is right, he will curse you. And so if you're ill under the old covenant, if you're especially uh, coming out of the proverbial worldview, as opposed to Job or Ecclesiastes, well, it's probably your fault. Now, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say if you're suffering to the point of death, it's your fault. Although, the, the Proverbs do suggest that that might be one of a variety of reasons that you're suffering. That's why it develops into the popular consciousness. So you, you think of Job's friends, right? Job was suffering. Well, you probably sinned. You've done something. So, it seems that this is exactly what Haman is wondering, but he's saying, well, no. I, I'm crying out to you. I'm depending on you. You're the God of my salvation. Save me. So the most accurate picture here is a man in the prime of his life who is near death and he's all alone. When I was in seminary, there was uh, a colleague of mine who was studying in the New Testament. I was in the Old Testament. He was in the New Testament. And he had three young kids, one of them not out of diapers yet. He was a very intelligent theologian, man of faith. He had had a bout with cancer, had recovered, and now he was back doing some classes. Uh, him and I went to a conference, not together, we didn't drive there together, but we presented at the same time in the same presentation. So I presented, then there was somebody else, and he presented. And what he said was, was brilliant. And within months, he was dead. Left behind a young wife, three young kids, loved the Lord, studying to be either a pastor or a professor of New Testament, wanted to share the gospel with people, help people to grow up in the Lord, and God took him. That's what's going on here. I, I just can't get my head around that. Have you been in that kind of a situation in your life? Someone you love? Just doesn't make sense. What happens? If it hasn't happened to you yet, there's no guarantee that that won't happen to you. It could happen to you, or for me as a father, worse, it could happen to my daughter. How should I pray? Verses 3 and following probably tells us how we should pray. My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. 
that are cut off from your hand. God, this is my situation. That's how you should pray. Don't try to be happy clappy. Don't try to go to church and say, oh, everything's great. I know where I'm going. And I hope that we can get to that place, okay? So I gotta be careful. But let it be real. And if you have a season where you're in this place, you gotta go there. Now, as we transition to verse nine, or six through the first half of nine, this is where it gets shocking. Okay, so verses three to five, I think we could pray that despair language but verse 6 through 9a Haman puts all the blame at God's feet can we do that this is the word of God now as I read these I want you to see the word that I emphasize there's a variety of ways to read this, right? We could emphasize different words. So I'm not saying that this is the definitive way to pray this, but let me suggest to you that it is an option for you if you find yourself in that place. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. It's your wrath that lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. I pause there because of the Selah. The psalmist is saying, just Sit in that for a moment. Then he continues. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. So I'm shut in. I can't escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. That image there is the life is, has been sucked out of Haman. And more than that, I think the tears are so full in the eyes that they dim the eyes. So the light gets trapped in the water of the tears. Haman blames God. transition now to the third section and this section is a series of rhetorical questions we're going to see six of them and again this is shocking can you can you actually say these things are they theologically accurate as I read them we're going to think well no that's not theologically accurate and the I don't know if I want to call it a problem but the what's going on there is we 
it's awkward, so we fill these questions with the gospel. But what, I, what we have to understand before I read these questions to you is that without the gospel, everything that Haman is saying is absolutely true. Third section, halfway through verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. There's, Hezekiah does this in... Um, Isaiah 36 to 39. The idea is Haman is either going into the temple or into his home or wherever it's appropriate, and he's laying down before the Lord with his hands open. Like he's in a vulnerable, weak, needy position. His, his whole prayer posture is laid out before God. So in the previous verses, if you could picture him shaking his fist at God, then he falls on his face and his hands are, are spread open before God. And now he's going back and he's in despair. He's like, why is this happening to me? Now he asks six questions of God, and, and they're rhetorical questions, and the answer in Haman's mind, so before we fill in the gap with the gospel, the answer in the immediate context of this psalm is no. So let's not miss that. Question number one. Do you work wonders for the dead? No. Dead people are dead. They have fallen outside of God's wonderful working power. God is life with a capital L. The furthest away from God that you get is death. Death is the exact opposite of who God is. Without the gospel, death is a permanent exile from God where He does no wonders. Question number two. Do the departed rise up to pray you, uh, praise you? Do you see a bunch of dead people gathered at the temple? bringing their sacrifice? Do, are there dead people gathering in local churches? No. Dead people don't go to church. Dead people don't go to the temple. Dead people don't praise God. They rot and decompose. They don't worship. Don't fill in the gap with, well, you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's the gospel. Stay in the psalm. Question number three. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? No. Dead people cannot speak. Neither do they experience the steadfast love of God. They're as far away from God 
who is life as they can get. Question number four. Is your steadfast love, no, sorry, is your uh, faithfulness declared in Abaddon? Abaddon is just another word for Sheol or the pit or the grave, the place where the dead are. Is your faithfulness declared in Abaddon? No. Dead people cannot speak. Neither do they experience the faithfulness of God there. Question number five. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Meaning death. No. Dead people don't know anything. They've passed out of the wonder-working world of God. Question number six. Is your righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? This is really dark. What is the land of forgetfulness? Without the gospel, if you die, it's as if you never lived. Now we know that you don't pass out of existence, but you're totally forgotten. Let me ask you, do you know anyone that lived 3000 BC? There were some great people probably. People who lived and loved as we live in love. Totally forgotten. No. Dead people don't know anything. They've passed out of the realm of the righteousness of God. Now, why does Haman ask these questions? It's not just that he's complaining. He's trying to persuade God, God, save my life. Save me. Work a wonder for me while I am alive. Heal me. If you heal me, I will rise up and praise you. If you heal me, I will declare your steadfast love. If you heal me, I will declare your faithfulness. But if you let me die, I will forget of your wonders. I will forget of your righteousness and you and everyone else will forget me. Before this morning, did you know anything about Ezra? I mean, Haman the Ezraite? We've forgotten him. Now you might ask me, and I preface this, is this good theology? Yes. Without the gospel, everything that Haman has written is absolutely true. Even, even the intermediate state of life after death where we await resurrection is totally dependent on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, this is it. So it is good theology, but praise God for the gospel that we can read that and say, well, I don't know that I could pray that. In 
in many ways, Haman is in this part of the psalm pleading with God for the gospel. Saying, God, you've got to do something. And if you don't save my life, at least make a way for the answer to these questions to be yes. Do you work wonders for the dead? In Christ Jesus, yes. Yes. Because if you are uh, in Christ, though your body dies, you're present with the Lord. And then the hope of resurrection, which takes us to the second question. Do the departed, the dead, rise up to praise you? Praise God, yes. By resurrection at the return of Christ. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes. The Lord Jesus descended to declare the goodness of the gospel. Is your faithfulness declared in Abaddon? Yes. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Yes. For those of us who are in Christ, we await resurrection from the dead. Is your righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? Yes, because for those of us who are in Christ, we're not forgotten. We are known to God. But these are, these are good requests, good questions, good pleads or pleas by Haman for the gospel. This takes us to the fourth and final section. And this is hard for us because what we find out in this section, unlike any other lament in the Psalms, God just lets Haman go. Doesn't heal him. Doesn't answer him. Just lets him die. And those questions remain unresolved. But I, O oh Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Another translation for that last line is this. Darkness has become my only companion. Amen. Haman dies. Why doesn't God answer him? Why doesn't God save him, his body? If you go to the superscription, we're told that this is a maskil, that's just a kind of song of Haman the Ezraite. Now he might have been a descendant of Ezra or he might have been a disciple of Ezra. 
If you know anything about Ezra, <laughs> Ezra loved the law, set his heart to know the law, to do the law, to teach the law. Ezra 7.10, I think we could, the reason that's put in there is we should say like, Haman is a lot like Ezra. God doesn't answer him. His wife has abandoned him, his friends have abandoned him, God has abandoned him, and then he dies. Have you ever encountered a dark night of the soul? A dark night of the soul is when it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, God seems far away. All, all of the people close to you seem far away. You're walking through life as if alone, and you're in such despair, and you cry out to God, and God doesn't seem to answer. You try to read the Bible, but it's like a stone book, and the words just bounce off your mind. They don't penetrate. They give no comfort. They give no hope. You begin to wonder if you're even saved. Uh, you, you, you wonder if any of this is real or true or trustworthy, and there's no hope. All joy has evaporated. Hope is extinguished, and darkness is your only friend. This is not an uncommon experience for people of faith, and I don't know why God does this. But He does. Jesus encountered a dark night of the soul. You see, this psalm is most fulfilled in Christ when He hung on the cross. Now, let's just put this in perspective. Jesus is the Son of God perfect fellowship with the Father forever into eternity past, forever into eternity future, except for those hours on the cross. <coughs> and everybody abandoned him. His mother was there, another Mary was there, John was there. But his father abandoned him. And we might read the second part of this psalm with a different emphasis. I know, Father, that you have put me in the dark depths of this pit, in the regions dark and deep, and I know that your wrath lies heavy upon me. And in the mouth of Christ, those are just true statements because he was propitiating the wrath of God for all of us. He took a dark night of the soul for us. And so what he's saying there is maybe not with the same aggression that I put into the mouth of Haman, but it's just theologically true. And that's where the hope is in this psalm. So I don't want to leave you in despair the way Haman leaves us. The only hope that I can offer you from this psalm is that when you are in Haman's position, when you are having a dark night of the soul for whatever reason, Jesus had a dark night of the soul too. And if you are united with Christ, you will be raised out of that dark night of the soul at God's perfect timing. And I can't promise you when that will be. 
But if you are united with Christ, if, if his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection, you will be raised. And the darkness will not get the last word. You see, when, when Jesus died and they stuck the spear into his side and blood and water came out and they took the stakes out of his hands and out of his feet and they brought him down dead as dead could be. And Joseph asked for the body and wrapped it up and put it in his tomb to fulfill Psalm 22. That's, that's verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companion has become darkness. And Jesus laid dead in the darkness of the tomb until the third day. But on the third day, praise God, all glory to God, he rose again, and so will we if we're in Christ. And so even while we pray this old covenant psalm, there's hope because this psalm fits most appropriately in the mouth of Christ. And the only hope I can extend to you is not a reversal of your situation, but resurrection from the dead. The wrath of God poured out on Christ. His death being yours. His dark night of the soul being yours. And his resurrection being yours. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if God gives us, those who truly love him, a dark night of the soul just so that we might taste. Just a drop of the depth of the sacrifice of Christ for us. Because the, the cross is an abstract idea. We'll never really understand what Jesus went through. But in a dark night of the soul, we're getting closer. What this lamentation and 64 others like it in the Psalter do for us, they teach us that God invites us to cry out to him, to accuse him even, when we are in despair. We don't need to be shiny, happy people. Out of the anguish of our soul, we ought to cry out to God God help us in the dark nights of our soul. To be one with Christ. Amen. Lord, for some of us, we needed this. Tired of pretending tired of putting on the face to come to church. There's great pressure there. And for some of us, this was totally un, unwelcome and unnecessary and it's been hard. Or it's maybe felt false or contrived that uh, there is no real reason for grief and sorrow today. And there's many of us all, all between those two extremes. I pray for everyone here, those who might listen to this sermon, Day's Future.
that wherever we are, that we would see the value of taking time to reflect on, on your psalms, your laments, this dark prayer of the Psalter. If for no other reason than to see the anguish of Christ, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, to think that you, you really did personify Haman's prayer more than Haman did on the cross. Forgive us, Lord, that we don't often go there to think of the depth of your sacrifice for us. Forgive me, God, that I just want everyone to be happy. It's not fair or real. I pray that as a church, you would help us to be real. That people can come to us vulnerably in this place and feel heard and loved. Lord, you do give us the dark night of the soul in different ways. If there's anyone here that is in the midst of a dark night of the soul, I pray especially for them. I pray that this would minister directly to them by your spirit. Give us a hope of resurrection even in the darkness. And remind us that no matter what we're going through, it's temporary that your faithfulness is limitless and great is your faithfulness always. You have your reasons. Now as we sing our closing song to you, comfort us with these true words. In Christ's name, amen.